Welcome, my name is Stu Halpern and I am the Senior Advisor to the Provost here at Yeshiva University. Today I am with Professor Michelle Rosenfeld from the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University. Professor Rosenfeld, tell us about yourself. My uh, official title, I am University Professor uh, for Law and Comparative Democracy and the Justice Sidney L. Robbins Professor of Human Rights at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law here at Yeshiva University. And my fields are American Constitutional Law, Comparative Constitutional Law, and Philosophy of Law. And uh, you recently co-edited, along with Susanna Mancini, a new book that we're here to discuss, The Conscience Wars, Rethinking the Balance Between Religion, Identity, and Equality. So how did this book come about? Well, uh, the book came about uh, intellectually uh, in terms of a uh, change, a profound change in how conscience claims are used to claim exemptions from the law. It, the, the classical cases were the, uh, uh, if, you, if you take, for instance, a 19th century example, Henry Thoreau decided not to pay taxes uh, because uh, he was opposed to the Mexican-American War and uh, slavery. So uh, he said that morally it was unacceptable to support uh, those two efforts. And um, as a result, uh, he himself did something that was illegal, for which he was legally responsible, but had a very diffuse effect on society. As long as you don't have massive number of people who don't pay taxes, the other examples uh, could, that are well known are exemption for military uh, service. Uh, so if you have 500,000 soldiers uh, sent abroad, and a handful of Jehovah's Witnesses don't go, the effect is very diffuse, very difficult to measure. The new uh, conscientious object is, uh, objection claim often affect a lot of individuals directly. One of them, which is well known because it led to a 5-4 to four U.S. Supreme Court decision, is the Hobby Lobby case, where the owner of a company that had 11,000 employees uh, decided not to apply part of the, or to seek an exemption from part of the Affordable Care Act, which requires giving contraceptive uh, assistance to women who seek it. And so the question is, if he is given an exemption, then the argument is that a, a number of, significant number of women do not get a benefit that the law gives them. And there are many other examples like that. So th this shift uh, from uh, what seems to be a diffuse effect to, in fact, undermining major laws which have a particular aspect, too. They are to protect classes that have been traditionally discriminated against, like women or uh, gay people or um, racial minorities. And so you gathered a team of scholars to discuss this issue? Is that what produced uh, So what happened is, as this uh, debate has now uh, uh, grown tremendously, both in the United States and abroad, in many countries abroad, we have very similar situations. Uh, my colleague, uh, uh, Professor Mancini, who teaches at the University of Bologna and who has been a recurring visitor at Cardozo many years, uh, decided to organize a conference at Cardozo, which we did. And we uh, had uh, a series of scholars, most of whom uh, are published in the book. And uh, were they examining this issue from their uh, respective locations across the world? What were, what were the unique angles that they offer? So it was a very varied group in terms of an interdisciplinary approach. We had philosophers, uh, political scientists, uh, and uh, law professors uh, from many countries. We had uh, one of the head litigators of the ACLU who uh, focuses on uh, women's issues. We had a judge of the European Court of Human Rights, 
and so it was a very uh, diverse group of people with very diverse points of view. And so you've spoken about this concept of a conscientious objection. Is that the same thing as civil disobedience? No, the two are uh, uh, different. They often go hand in hand, but they're different. Conscientious objection means that I have a moral objection uh, to uh, uh, following a particular law, and uh, I can ask for an exemption, or I can violate the law, saying that I am morally unable to do so, and then uh, have the... uh, accept the consequences of what happens when you uh, violate the law. Civil disobedience is a political act. And so one can say that uh, conscientious objection is something that people do on the basis of principle. It could be a moral principle, a religious principle. Civil disobedience is a political decision. Uh, it's an idea of fighting a policy you don't like and trying to invite people to join you. Now, of course, uh, you can link the two because I think that this more, more law is morally objectionable. Uh, I would like to have people join me and disobey the law so we can dramatize our position. And is, is conscientious objection a legal right? Are you protected when you object? That's an interesting question. A conscientious objection per se is not a legal right. Uh, because otherwise uh, you could uh, simply assert that you have a principle and say, I will not obey this law. Uh, what the, some constitutions uh, in uh, giving freedom of religion, uh, in, uh, most if not all modern Western constitutions uh, recognize freedom of religion as one fundamental right, uh, add freedom of conscience. And then the question is, what does freedom of conscience mean? And uh, interestingly enough, the American Constitution does not recognize a right to freedom of conscience. Uh, So conscientious objection is something that the court, the Supreme Court, eventually has to look into. Uh, A very interesting uh, issue that uh, that, uh, is uh, related to this is the fact that at the time of the Vietnam War, Uh, by a law of Congress, uh, there was an exemption from serving in the military if uh, someone objected on a religious ground, meaning that uh, in in the definition of religious ground was believing in the supreme being. Whereas in England during World War I, uh, exemptions were given to people who objected on uh, principled and demonstrable philosophical grounds, non-religious philosophical grounds, and the difference was is that British law allowed for a freedom of conscience, whereas the American law only speaks of freedom of religion. And, and this idea of conscientious objection before Thoreau, where does it emerge from? Did, did it originate with him, or does, it go, does its origins go back earlier? The origins, uh, it, this is a very complicated story, and just to summarize it quickly, we have two uh, of the chapters of the book that deal with this extensively. The idea of conscience as a uh, giving rise to a freedom, which is where it starts, is a Christian idea. And it goes back to the Apostle Paul, uh, who said that one should look into one's conscience to discover the truth. 
Uh, it was then somewhat expanded uh, to say that even heretics should be allowed some degree of freedom so that they can discover the truth for themselves. And if you force them uh, to uh, do the right thing from a religious point of view, uh, you will never achieve that they would become convinced, which from a Christian, Christian point of view apparently was very important. This then evolved uh, and was revived during the Reformation, uh, in that one of the main attacks that Luther launched against the Catholic Church was that, in fact, the Pope was imposing uh, on people what they should believe in conscience. The real conscience and re true religious belief was being subverted, and so Protestantism relaunched that idea. It is only at the time of the Enlightenment that freedom of conscience was expanded to include non-religious grounds, and the notion of conscientious objection was uh, grew out of that uh, and was the idea that one should resist the law on the basis of a moral uh, principle, whether religious or secular. And to speak to a contemporary issue, after we've learned about the history of this idea, anyone who follows sports, and even if you haven't followed sports, you've heard about the issue of football players protesting by not standing for the national anthem at football games. Would you classify this as conscientious objection? It's a very difficult, um, it, I know that the problem is simple, uh, and we've all seen it, uh, but it's a very difficult question for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, often it is said that these uh, players are asserting their First Amendment rights, uh, but they work for a private organization, a team or the NFL, so they don't have a First Amendment right. Uh, on the other hand, the, um, the, they're protesting what they uh, think is society's racism and mistreatment of racial minorities, so they're making a political stance. So from a legal point of view, the teams in the NFL could prohibit it, could fire them, could do whatever they want, but of course, because football is in the public domain and, and very many Americans follow it, it's not the same thing as if a company that uh, produces bottles fires a few employees. The other dimension is that the President of the United States has intervened uh, and has criticized uh, these players, and some people uh, say he does it uh, because of racial insensitivity or downright racism. So now you have a huge political confrontation around that. Now, maybe a particular individual says, I do it for moral reasons, and I'm violating uh, the rules of my team. So you can say it's conscientious objection in this sense. But it's not the same as not obeying a law uh, to pay taxes because it supports slavery. So it's very difficult to classify it in terms of the uh, well-known uh, conscientious objection and civil disobedience standards. And if you were advising the commissioner of the NFL, how would you suggest they deal well, with it? Uh, my view uh, is that uh, th this is something that the league should resolve, uh, and uh, I am not uh, the commissioner, lucky for me. Uh, and it seems to me that the it has become uh, much bigger than it should have been. Yes, if a few players protested, we, we, we had this, for those of us who are old enough, uh, during the Olympics of 1968 in Mexico City, where the African-American athletes who won the gold, silver, and a bronze medal in one event all stood up and had a fist up in the air during uh, the national anthem, which offended a lot of people. 
Now, is that per se illegal? I don't think so. Was it offensive to many people? Yes. Uh, was it a symbol uh, to uh, make draw attention uh, to racism? So you can look at it from many points of view. It's very difficult to classify it as civil disobedience or as a conscientious objection. And in the book, you write about the concept of comprehensive pluralism, which you've written about in other contexts as well. What do you mean by that term, and how is this a helpful way of addressing the challenges of what you deem the conscience wars? What a comprehensive pluralism is, is a, a philosophical uh, theory. Uh, I have entered a debate uh, between liberals and communitarians uh, in di different uh, philosophical, political philosophical positions relating uh, to justice and to the obligations and the rights in the constitutional state. My basic premise is that uh, in constitutional democracies, we live in uh, countries where people have different ideologies, different religions, different political outlooks, and that the constitutional democracy itself uh, should be uh, oriented towards trying to accommodate as many viewpoints as possible. So if you take that position, then you look at, uh, it has two aspects, uh, two basic aspects. The first aspect is that prima facie, all ideologies are the same, in, in the sense that if you believe sincerely that uh, this is your moral obligation, your religious way of life, etc., etc., you should be taken seriously. And second is, how can we accommodate uh, as many as those as possible? And obviously, some of them we cannot. The jihadist uh, uh, person, for instance, who says that uh, the infidel must be eliminated, obviously, he cannot be accommodated in a pluralist society. And others uh, will be accommodated with some compromises. So within this general view, uh, conscientious objection claims should be taken seriously, and then uh, a, an analysis should be uh, conducted uh, depending on the claim and the effect on other people. One of the things that uh, is, uh, is a key I issue in the, what we call the conscience wars, and I said it was less important in the previous cases such as Thoreau or the military service exemption, is that there are classes of people that are hurt if the conscientious objection is granted. And often those classes of people are the people uh, who have been discriminated uh, on some unjustified basis, be it sex, gender, uh, sexual orientation, or uh, race. And so this creates a particular problem that was not so prevalent before. So in each, each case, one has to measure uh, how serious the claim is, um, what is the real harm, uh, and sometimes this is subjective because obviously one doesn't want to go into, uh, for instance, details of a religious claim, so long as it's in good faith. And on the other side, what is the harm? And can society, how can society live with that? Do you partially grant the conscientious objection claim? Do you fully grant it? Or do you stop it because the harm that it causes is unacceptable to a pluralist society? And what do you anticipate being the next great conscientious objection uh, fad or issue? Well, we have a lot of them that, are, that have not been given a final solution uh, in the sense that we had a case uh, by the, uh, in front of the Supreme Court, and, which is that Master Cake case, which is a Christian uh, baker did not want to sell a cake uh, f uh, that would be used in the celebration of a uh, same-sex marriage. 
the court uh, resolved the case uh, on a technicality, and that it was that the Colorado Commission that looked at the complaint uh, had an anti-religious bias so that the cake uh, master uh, plaintiffs or defendants, they were the defendants, they were the ones accused, the, play, the cake masters, uh, people who were accused, uh, did not have a fair hearing. So we don't have any decision on the merits. Uh, this is going to be a, an issue, I think, and it is an issue uh, that uh, will require resolution both in the United States and other parts of the world. Uh, I can give you an example, for instance, that is uh, difficult to resolve, and that is uh, abortion, uh, and, and specifically doctors performing abortion. And that's an example from Italy. In Italy, uh, the the there is a a possibility for conscientious objection even in a state hospital by a, a doctor uh, to perform abortion. But there's been a study that shows that doctors join a state hospital, have no religious objection, and then 70% of them eventually uh, develop such an, a conscientious objection. But the reason for that is they prefer to do more lucrative uh, operations than that. So this is an example of where you have a harm because uh, obviously if the state uh, um, hospital doctors refuse to do what the state requires them to do. Uh, many women do not have the services to which they're entitled. And on the other hand, uh, you want to, of course, accommodate those who sincerely uh, object to this uh, in not having to violate their religion uh, as a state doctor. And so that's an example of where we don't have a clear solution because the problem is becoming exacerbated. Uh, and so the, the, the big issue is the spread of this. This has now spread. Uh, very easily it becomes uh, one of the choice uh, labels used by someone who doesn't like a law. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's 100% uh, justified, at least from their point of view. And then, uh, in my view, one should look at the harm that imposes on others and to what extent society can afford it. And in other times, it leads to abuse. And have you looked at all how conscientious objection plays out in Israeli law and Israeli society? Uh, I have not looked at that. It's interesting that uh, one of the uh, historical uh, findings is that this whole notion of conscience uh, is a very Christian idea. And uh, so one can say, for instance, uh, if a person uh, objects that, uh, let's say, somebody would want to force them to eat something that's not the kosher, uh, that that's not a conscientious objection issue, that is a religious duty, uh, and therefore it's uh, phrased differently. Now, I am sure that in Israel, uh, given uh, all the uh, controversies, there must be claims, but I am not familiar with any particular, um, any particular decision that focuses on that. One of the things that in Israel uh, would, I think, make this particular kind of claim perhaps less uh, usable, if I may use that term, is that uh, various religious communities have their own uh, uh, structures and their own institutions. Uh, so it would be very difficult, for instance, uh, for a Christian uh, to say that the chief rabbinate of Israel is disturbing them in their uh, marriage or non-divorce or divorce, I don't know which branch of Christianity is in charge of that, um, because this would be referred to their own religious community. And so, uh, in this sense, I think it's, very, uh, it's a very unique situation. And what is your next project? My next project is, I've worked uh, for many years now on two strands of uh, scholarship. One is my uh, 
legal and political philosophical uh, scholarship on comprehensive pluralism as a theory. And the other one, I have worked on uh, comparative constitutional law and constitutional theory and have worked, uh, had a book called The Identity of the Constitutional Subject in Terms of Constitutional Identity. Uh, you find that uh, in uh, ev every uh, democratic country, everybody has a freedom of, of speech provision, but it's interpreted very differently. What accounts for the fact that, for instance, the Germans prohibit denial of the Holocaust and the United States Constitution does not? So I go into uh, examining that question generally and say that there is an element of identity, uh, which is different than national identity, which I call constitutional identity. And so far, I have not put the two together. So you have a framework, an abstract framework, where uh, you can have general concepts, but where do we draw the line? Like, yes, we want to be pluralistic, but how do we solve problem X or Y? And I have no uh, systematic answer. On the other hand, I can uh, detail uh, various different uh, constitutional identities and points of difference between countries and systems. But uh, how does that fit within a general theoretical framework? So my next project is to try to, uh, to get these two questions together and see if I can get the comprehensive theory that covers both of them. I look forward to learning even more from you when that project comes out. And thank you so much for being our guest today. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.